And so when you stand under the dome, you can hear all of the elders talking to you about their stories and you can see their portraits while you're listening to it. But the further you step away or outside of the dome, the more muffled or hard to hear it becomes. And that is to give you like a visualization of with Black history, we have so many Black people who remember going through it ruby bridges like black girl who integrated school she's still alive she's in her 50s like we have people who are still alive who dealt with this they remember the civil rights movement all these things but we are not actually talking to them and so i am showing you this is what archives should be doing is finding these individuals everyday individuals i'm not like not like big people but just everyday people and asking them what it was like to build a more robust picture and then if you are actively in that circle, you're hearing all these amazing stories. But if you're outside of it or further away, you only see a person and you don't hear the story. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 290th episode, I'm excited to be joined by Lillian Young, who I spoke with from Brooklyn. She's currently working as the Family Programs Coordinator at the Brooklyn Museum. And of course, we talk about some recent experiences. She earned her MFA in studio art at Michigan State University, as well as earned a Museum Studies certification. And of course, we talk about those two roles, being an educator, being an artist, and bringing to light the history of black America through her work. And one of the most predominant pieces for that is the problem with archives, the runaways. So we talk quite a bit about these uh, runaway portraits, as well as the elders, which is a piece that you kind of heard about in the introduction. But we break down all of those things as it relates to her work, and of course, discuss her background and all sorts of great experiences. It's a fantastic trip. So once again, I would encourage you to check out Lillian artlife.org that's her website you'll find all the information there to follow on social media and see some of these projects and work you can also follow her on instagram that's little life underscore and underscore art there's a link tree there with all sorts of information about some of her upcoming exhibitions and current exhibitions she currently has work in a group exhibition she her at row two art gallery in dallas texas she also has an upcoming exhibition in june at the Fort Worth Community Arts Center. So once again, make sure to follow her to stay up to date and know about those exhibitions. There will be links on studiobreak.com, which of course, if you're new to the podcast, go check it out. There's a big archive of interviews there. Each of those posts have images of the artist's work, links to their websites, so you can find out all about them. So go to studiobreak.com and check it out. I would note real quick to any student artists, our 2023 Studio Break student competition is now open. So if you are a MFA MA or BA, BFA student and you want to share your work, go on over to studiobreak.com, look under the competition page and you'll find out how to apply. It's really easy. You send an email with all of your information. You pay a small fee. And our juror this year is Mia Reesberg. She'll be selecting five artists from the undergraduate and graduate category for a total of 10 to appear on an upcoming episode of Studio Break. And two of those artists will be picked for a two-person exhibition at Studio Break Gallery in West Chicago, Illinois. The deadline for that is April 30th, so get those applications in. And, of course, if you know anybody that should apply, please help spread the word. One easy way to do that is in social media, so be sure to like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter, at Studio Break, and, of course, on Instagram, at Studio underscore Break. With those announcements, let's get right into this awesome interview with Lillian Young. Stay tuned. Welcome. 
Welcome to Studio Break, Lillian Young. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm good. How are you? Excellent. You know, I'm excited to have you on, and we've been talking already and and learning a little bit about you. Mm-hmm. Excited to share that with uh, listeners. So, just remind us, you're you're in Brooklyn right now. Yeah, I moved to Brooklyn, New York, but I'm from Fort Worth, Texas. So I'm a I'm a transplant, as some of my friends have called me. Uh, but I'm from Texas. Right on. And just grew up there your whole life in the Fort Worth area. Well, essentially, I'm from born. My birth certificate is from Charlotte, North Carolina. But when I was about five, four years old, um, my mom got a promotion from being just like a head reporter to an editor of the newspaper. So we moved where the job was. <laughs> we moved to Fort Worth. Sure, sure. We've been there since I was about five. My and my dad has declared our house in Fort Worth his retirement home. <laughs> so as far as I know, my family is not leaving. <laughs> And what kind of things were you interested in, you know, kind of growing up? Were you always like kind of focused on art or? So growing up, because my mom was a journalist and my dad was an accountant. So two very like practical jobs. Um, And then my sister (laughs) and I were like, we're going to be in the arts, which gave my dad a little bit of a heart attack, but he's supportive. (laughs) But what happened was uh, my mom like introduced me to a lot of things and she would always take me to go see museums and stuff in my hometown. They were free at the time. So she always said, I only did it. So that way we could just do something for free and you wouldn't be out. Of, you would be out of the house. Mm-hmm. But growing up, I started to really love art, but I also did theater a lot. So I was a theater kid for a long time. I did summer camps for theater. I did art summer camps too. I've done dance since I was about three years old. I haven't really danced lately, but I've been, I'm in New York now, so I'm sure I can find a dance class, <laughs> but I used to do tap, jazz, ballet, lyrical, all those things. It was quite fun. And then for a long time when I was younger, I remember saying I was going to be an archaeologist because I really liked Egyptology, but also looking at like ancient civilizations, like the Omleks and the Maya. But then I decided I wanted to be a movie director. And I remember saving up for my very (laughs) first camcorder when I was about like 10 or 12. And I would make like little movies at school and stuff like that. Or when I go on trips. And then I decided I wanted to be specifically a Montessori teacher as well. I went to a Montessori school in elementary (laughs) and I was like, this is fun. And I'd be cool teaching this. And I was going the trajectory of a teacher throughout high school I was going to be get my art education degree when I was in undergrad. And then about five months before my original graduation date, I realized I don't want to be stuck in a classroom and I don't like the teaching system and education system of America, but I like museum education. So I switched to being studio art and I have been doing art ever since. And honestly, it's my mom's fault. I'm doing art because I found her old sketchbooks when I was about like 11 and I it was of the mindset, if she can do it, then I can do it. And was that something then where your dad was in support of it too? Because uh, I would imagine your mom certainly was, but... Both my parents have been really supportive. And then my grandmother also lives with us. And she's also very supportive of it. My dad, he is just mostly worried about like where my sister and I will have money to pay our bills and get our next meal, which is understandable. <laughs> and I appreciate his support for that. Sure. Because when I told them that I wanted to switch my major to art, both my parents were like, you should have done this literally four years ago. Um, But they were very supportive of that change Mm -hmm. and were like, just graduate with something. And then my dad, he just asked me, like, make sure you take this into account. Put in your expenses and your taxes that you paid this much for your thing. He always asks about like all the art stuff that I'm doing. He does not understand 
most of it, but mm-hmm. he listens or he asks me questions. He makes a point in my hometown and growing up every single time I had an exhibition, he's a teacher now. So he's a middle school teacher with middle schoolers are just a lot. But even after, after work, I would have an exhibition. And even just recently, I had one back home that I went to for the 150th anniversary of my alma mater. He came after work to see it. So he would come to all of my shows if I asked him to or if I told him about it. And he would be there to like represent me. And he'd always give me a hug and then say he's proud of me. And he'd look at my art specifically and like do the dad thing and take all the photos of me like posing in front of it and then me a picture with me and stuff like that and then he'd be like I'll see you at home and just leave he never posts (laughs) anything because he does not like social media and does not have it but he is like very supportive of everything he just wants to make sure that I actually can feed myself well again it's it's good to have a story like that where it's like the family is supportive of this endeavor you know and and maybe talk a little about that transition so it was in undergraduate Mm -hmm. when you kind of this this shift of focus so maybe talk a little bit about that experience and I know we've kind of on the periphery has talked about it but were you then kind of like taking all your standard kind of classes and things like that I went started at college in 2014 and I was going to be art ed and I love the art education program from my alma mater which is TCU it's great actually taught me a lot of things that I still use in my work today uh, at the Brooklyn Museum and even in grad school going into that I realized I knew how to teach already um, with the things that they were teaching us in grad school, like pedagogy. I already knew exactly what my pedagogy was and had the sources to prove it because we did all that at TCU. So I was like, fantastic. Um, But one of the things that I got to experience is one of my art ed classes, we went to our local modern museum and there was a Kehinde Wiley exhibition. And I had never heard of Kehinde Wiley in my life. This was my sophomore year of college. And that was the first time I actually saw Black people depicted in museums in a way where they just looked, for a better word, dope. Like, it was amazing for me. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, standing in the galleries and I was tearing up and kind of crying. And I was the only Black kid in my program at the time. And my professor, my professor, who still remembers this, came up to me and was like, what do you think? And I was, she was like, Dr. Allison, I'm literally in my 20s I've never seen anything like this I'm crying and if I feel like this as a 20 year old how does a five-year-old feel to see this and Mm -hmm. I started to look more into museum education but figuring out how to like bring museums into what was supposed to be my classroom in a school and to bring that art to more kids who don't feel comfortable in museums because for a time I myself didn't really feel comfortable in museums but having those like a lot of black kids and helping minority students feel more comfortable I found like a study from 2010 that said only like five percent of the uh, population who were black had actually gone to museums or went to museums which I think is way too low Mm -hmm. and I started doing that I got internships at the Kimball Museum in my hometown. I got two internships at the Smithsonian, which I don't know how I did that, but it happened. Um, And I started doing museum education and using my art making and lesson planning skills that I was learning as an art ed teacher. But when I got to my final semester before student teaching, it came to light that the education department had, like TCU's general education department just did not sign me up for an entire art education class that I was required to take. And in order to do it, I would have had to go through a bunch of hoops. I would have had to take the class while I was doing teacher training stuff, which is just a lot. And then also 
I couldn't for the life of me pass one exam that I needed to pass, which is to say they wanted me to get an 85 and I was making 82s and 83s, which is not passing by their standard. And so they had to deliberate, mm -hmm. were they going to allow me to take this exam? Cause I could potentially ruin TCU's 100% track record. And it was just a lot. And I remember that the day that I took the test pretest for the last time and I got an 83 just feeling very defeated and going to teach at a school that I was doing part-time teaching at. And I was not having a good day that day. And uh, the kids were, they were fine, but they were saying how they really liked art class. And it was just a time for them to relax. And I just made the decision. I don't need to be a part of this weird system. I love my old students. I still keep in contact with some of them and some of them are going to art school now, which makes me so excited. Super cool. But I realized I didn't want to be a part of like a school system that was making it very difficult for me to actually get in when I knew I was a good teacher and I had students telling me I was a good teacher. So I called my painting mentor, my studio art mentor the next day. Um, and it was like, can we have a meeting? And we had one that morning. And I said, I want to change my major. And I would like to, to be painting now. And he double checked that my parents were okay with this before I was making a <laughs> irrational decision. And then I changed my major that day. But I still did art education things to help my artistic practice. It's very focused on education. So everything that I learned from being an art ed student, I was able to easily transfer to being a studio art student. And then honestly, it helps me better explain my art more and help it to connect to people more universally. No, absolutely. That That's such an interesting story, you know, just going from that experience at the museum and allowing that to kind of shift your your thought and, and process and trying to figure out how to make that accessible for other people. It's, again, a really cool kind of endeavor. And on a side note, as somebody, again, like, like I was saying to you earlier, I feel like a lot of uh, just straight art, you know, like mm -hmm. only taking art, like we have such a disconnection with the educational side of it to me that I'm just kind of like, there's tests. Yeah. There's tests for certification. I'm like, that's so weird to think that like, it's not just training and, you know. For Texas, at least you have to take, I think it's PPR. I might be saying the wrong letter, but you have to take like this practicum test. It was difficult for me to take this test because it was supposed to be in an ideal world. How do you handle this situation in your classroom? But I had what and was running a classroom at that moment where the situation like they were giving me, I had dealt with two weeks ago and the correct answer would not have worked for how I had to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And so I was giving them, well, this is the logical answer of what you do in this situation. And they were like, no, you do it this way. And I was like, that way doesn't fix anything. Right. So it was kind of just cross wires. But when you are a specific education track, so for like art ed, you had to take a test that was like, name this painting, name what this means, what is a line? And like, it's just a really basic, like standardized test of proving that I actually understand what art is. Mm -hmm. And then like for music, I assume like they have to learn how to sheep read and all this stuff. So like, yeah, you have to go through these, these weird sections to prove I am an expert or I know really well the subject that I have been studying for the last four years. And I also know how to teach people, not necessarily teach them that subject, but I can teach people in general. It's interesting to kind of think about how all that happened, but obviously, you know, it seems like you've made the right choices. I'm having fun now. Yeah. 
Well, so, so what was that like then after you kind of, you know, had that split then? Because then you're then just solely focused on the art side of things, just studio classes. Yeah. What kind of things were you making? Because of the way that my art ed thing worked is I got to like skip some beginner classes or uh, there were some classes where I was like, I can avoid this and never take it. And then I switched to studio art and it was, it is mandatory. You take this class that you've been avoiding for four years. Mm -hmm. So I had to take a new media class, which is just audio and video. And I was a painter, strictly a painter. I was like, I don't know how to do that. Technology scares me. And then I had to be a part of that <laughs> class, which my, one of my best friends laughs at me all the time because she is a new media artist. And she's like, it's easy. And I went, no, it's really not. <laughs> and it's not. But now I use new media in a lot of my work anyway. So I guess she was right, but I had to mm -hmm. jump into that. I was still teaching um, my little art class because it was at a Montessori school and it was part-time. So they, it was like an extracurricular kind of type situation. So it was still allowed to teach, which helped me build up that skill and have like real world skills while also I had to delve in and like make a whole new body of work and portfolio. And I learned how to do printmaking. And now I like to do printmaking. Like, as you see behind me, I got some prints that I made. Sure. And I realized that I can use printmaking and painting for these things. But I also got to delve more into what is my minor, which is art history, and really just start doing that research and researching um, like different time periods, specific artists and stuff like that, which was really fun. So the shift wasn't too bad. It was sad because uh, my friends at the time, they were still in our ed. Our ed was small enough where we all took the same courses, essentially the same schedule. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't spending uh, the same amount of time necessarily that I had been before with them because I was on a different studio arts schedule. We still had studio art classes. We still had some classes, but it wasn't like I saw them all the time or we weren't all student teaching at the same time, which we were supposed to be doing and prepping for that. So that shift was weird, but it worked out. And one of the things that worked out that I always laugh about is I, as I said, I got two internships at the Smithsonian. And for the second one, generally, I was a recipient of what's called the Minority Award at the Smithsonian, which means it's paid internship because all Smithsonian internships are voluntary. But if you have the Minority Award stipend, it's paid. And they only give it ever to one person. Like you get it once and that's usually it. But I applied for the stipend again, and I cited in my cover letter, you literally are the reason why I changed my major. You should pay me compensation for that. <laughs> and they did. And I got to intern at the National, Ga National Portrait Gallery. And it was the year the Obama portraits premiered. So that was just really cool for Very me. Because cool. I was like, let's talk about the Obama portraits. And they also had a Titus Kafar. Uh, exhibition and so it was just really it was amazing awesome yeah and i would imagine then too there was some type of like thesis or something that you had to do in terms of kind of like graduating what what kind of work were you kind of making because i would imagine all these experiences you know and working all these places kind of helped influence that and obviously you know you have a love of yeah art history but then also art are you know currently kind of exploring this kind of like unspoken you know, black American history that maybe people don't yeah. kind of know about, but was that something that creeped in then or did that come later? Oh no, it came in then. It started kind of around the time when Trayvon Martin was killed. And so like when his mm -hmm. murder was acquitted, I was talking to someone in the studio and I was still in art ed, but I had said, 
this is just like Emmett Till. And no one knew who I was talking about. They didn't know who Emmett Till was, which I grew up hearing that story. I knew it. And I was very confused how people couldn't know. So I made a painting about it because it just so happened that for like that next couple of weeks, we were doing political paintings. Mm-hmm. So I did a painting of Emmett Till and Trayvon Martin on a Twitter page. Like you could see both their photos and stuff. And it was like a whole thing. And then after that, I started doing it where I was painting Black history moments that I knew about or that I was like, this should be mainstream history. Like it has a bunch of research on it. And like people should definitely know what it is. And it was easy enough for me to like kind of find those things. And as I was delving more into also my art history minor, I realized I was more in the category of a historical artist. So like before the Impressionists, you had portraitists, landscape painters, and you had historical artists. And I was like, oh, that's me. I'm literally painting history. Mm-hmm. So I'm specifically a Black historical artist is what I tell people a lot. And the term isn't used that much anymore, but it works for me. And so I started delving into those. And for my thesis, my professor slash mentor, Adam, was like, you have to make an entirely new body of work. And I thought I was going to get a show with two other people. And then I don't know what happened but they were not graduating now at the same time as me so it was a solo exhibition which I was like oh no nice (laughs) so I got to have a solo exhibition for my uh undergrad thesis and it's called redaction um and essentially that one is looking at how there are these moments in black history that are really big there's information about them it's not necessarily difficult to find out about them but it's still can be difficult if you're trying to find out like a lot of things but that was talking about how we have historically redacted bits and pieces of it and made it more difficult to find the full history of that and that series started from we had to do a crumpled paper exercise where we just had to paint crumpled paper it could be anything type of paper and I don't remember what had happened but I was very mad at the government as (laughs) usual and I printed out just a copy of what like the first page of the bill of rights and crumpled that and then I painted just a little eight by ten practice thing of that and then I was like this can be my thesis and it just kind of grew from there I will say and Adam denies it to this day but he's a lying liar that he had told me that I needed all new work for this exhibition and I assumed that meant entirely all new work to fill an entire gallery in three months. And then I finished it. And he told me on the opening night, he was like, I didn't tell you that you needed all new work. I just meant that you needed to have work that had never been shown in this gallery. And <laughs> I was like, you lie. And I <laughs> did not appreciate that. But I had entirely new stuff. And my show was a hit. It got like one or two extra showings and other places. So it worked out. I was most work I've ever done besides my graduate thesis, but it worked out. Well, and again, littleartlife.org is the website. And so yeah. you can find, you know, this body of work there. And are there other pieces that you kind of ha- like to highlight from that? Cause I know, again, there's, there's a lot, you know, going on. There's even some video work, Yeah. but were there other kind of significant pieces that, that you'd like to talk about? The other significant thing that started around that time was I started what's called the Can You See Her project. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the women's studies department, they had a grant competition and it was like, come up with a project that's focused on women and maybe you'll win money. And I had just started doing printmaking and my print professor was kind of like, you should enter, see what happens. And I was like, I don't have an idea. And the only thing I could come up with 
was like, I'll just do prints of like black women in history that I think are cool. And I'll call it, can you see her? Cause I see them, but not a lot of people know about them. And I got a grant. I was not expecting it. They gave me a bunch of money to buy printmaking supplies. So I was like, oh, <laughs> I guess I have to do this now. <laughs> so with can you see her? I make original prints, sometimes buttons and stickers if I have a little extra cash. Um, black women from history that I just think are really cool and we should talk about more often. Mm-hmm. So one of the first ones that I did were just civil rights leaders. And then recently I've been doing just kind of a lot of women that I know about or people have like been putting in my direction. So I just did one on Nina Simone because she's one of my absolute favorite singers. And that's on display at like the gallery that represents me in Dallas. And then I, uh, did one about it's actually behind me it's about bessie stringfield and she was a black motorcyclist and she was one of the first or first or only female black female motorcyclists during world war ii and she loved riding a motorcycle she did to the day she died when she was like in her 80s and she drove all across the jim crow like south and like uh, the nation of america just on a bike by herself because she could and i could never but I love her so much because I'm like that's so cool that you just did it because you wanted to and I just think these women are amazing so that's what another big project that I continue on and off today just because mm-hmm. I don't have necessarily full access to a print shop like I used to but I get to do things like that of just making these prints and experimenting with like different ma- print making material but figuring out how can I like depict these women in a way where you really understand what they did and see how awesome they are. Well, and I would imagine that was kind of one of the big responses to, to the, the work in your thesis and, you know, this project that you've continually kind of worked on is that aspect of, you know, bringing these things to attention or giving them attention or kind yeah. of talking about them. And it sounds like then too, it's provided you all these other opportunities, which you've gone after, which is again, really not to sound weird. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it could be intimidating to have so many, you know, people kind of reaching out or opportunities, but it sounds like, again, you're, you're, you just kind of really after it and obviously super passionate about it. So again, that, that has to feel pretty good. And I'm assuming then your, your family and everybody was able to kind of come out and check out all the, the stuff that you did for your thesis show and kind of see that shift. Yeah. For my undergrad, they got to come out and see it. A bunch of my friends, friends from high school, friends I hadn't seen in years, but we still kept on in social media, all came to my show. And I was like, oh my God, thanks for being here. Mm-hmm. It got written up in one of the local art things. And they were like, this was a great show. Usually undergrad theses are like very put upon themselves, but this was really well put together. And that was the highest praise I've ever gotten because I had to do that all of it by myself. And it worked sure. out really well. <laughs> So it was really fun to get to see people actually like engaging and liking it. It was also interesting as someone who's from Texas, one of the things I get a lot, especially from older generations, is people saying, I never experienced that. Generally because they're just older white people. And yeah, you never experienced it and you didn't know these things were happening. But a lot of times they'd be like, I didn't know this happened. I never experienced it. And I was like, yeah, it really sucks. But like, it is history. I'm not saying you're doing it. I'm saying it happened. And it's interesting to be able to have those conversations with those people it's not necessarily like a yelling match or anything I'm not saying they're right I'm not saying I'm wrong I'm just having conversation and telling you this random history thing that I think is fascinating and sometimes they'll tell me stories where I'm like okay well that's kind of weird but cool thanks for telling me I see your perspective but it's a weird not necessarily one I enjoy 
but generally everyone came and like talked to each other and had a conversation. Um, and even at my thesis, one of the things that happened is my, our ed professors and Adam, cause he schemes were like, you have to put something that's interactive for people to be able to do in your exhibition. And I was like, why do I have to do this? So <laughs> the interactive thing people could do at the exhibition is I just put a stack of papers and a Sharpie and was like, make your own protest sign. Like if you had to make a protest sign about something that would cause a giant movement like the civil rights movement, what would it be? And we got a lot of really cool protest signs. I think I still have them like in my house and my parents' house and stuff. One that I always remember was like, bring back the spicy chicken nuggets at Wendy's and they <laughs> brought them back. So I feel like protest signs help. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it, it makes me think about, you know, in, in the in kind of like you, we were talking about a little bit before, I mean, like there's so much history that's just lost, especially in like yeah. today's time of TikTok and whatever else it just seems like such a peripheral thing so to kind of bring that to the forefront is is something interesting to especially do with your work and you know super ambitious to especially you know do an entire new show yeah was that something then where you kind of then knew that like you had to kind of continue this or did you take time off to kind of work and, and do some other opportunities before you moved on to graduate school I knew I wanted to continue it I didn't know how I wanted to continue it it's mostly what happens a lot of the time is I love history podcasts. I think they're so cool. And I mostly will just listen to them and then I'll hear someone make a comment on a podcast and I'll be like, what is that about? And start mm -hmm. going into a rabbit hole or even watching like TV, like like uh, Lovecraft Country, one of my favorite TV shows. I, I know it's all fictional, but there's so many black history moments in it that are not well known that when I'm watching it, I'm like, oh my God, this is the coolest like Bessie Stringfield she's actually in an episode of Lovecraft Country and unless you know who she is and you're watching it like you don't understand the significance of seeing this random motorcyclist like drive past a character and I remember watching it and being like oh my god that's so cool so like sure I love seeing all those connections but like after undergrad I was still doing part-time teaching and I needed a job so I got a part-time job at my local museum and I was their museum educator and I was taking a break from doing like I guess what I I call my art practice a lot of like heavy art because sometimes the topic matter can be like really heavy when you're constantly researching lynchings of multiple people and stuff like that or just the way we've forgotten hundreds and thousands of people and so I was working at the museum working more it's a very classical museum, so it was mostly like classical paintings and all these uh, other things. We had a Monet exhibition one year, the year I was there, and it was very focused on watercolor. So doing things like that, but I was still doing more like, can you see her prints on the side? And not doing as much heavy things with paintings, just because I wanted a little bit of a break. But I know I still wanted to keep doing Black historical paintings. My family is not necessarily like we don't talk about our family past. It's just that a lot of the people who would have answers to some of the questions we have are dead. There's a bunch of open questions that I'm just going to have to live with. And I understand that. Or even like asking my grandmother certain questions. She doesn't necessarily have the answers or want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Or she doesn't understand why I'm asking her these questions. And she looks at me and just goes, go away. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so doing this research, it is a way for me to understand my own family history without ever fully getting like the details. Like I did a piece on the Great Migration. And then 
my nan was telling me about how our family was part of the great migration and she migrated to the north and da da and I just didn't know that it happened. And it, I was I was like, I didn't know we were part of any of this. And she's like, oh yeah, like your great grandfather went to work and then he sent us money. And I was like, this is literally the great migration. Why didn't you tell me that we were part of this things? And it seems obvious, but it helps me kind of deal with the fact that there are a lot of answers to my own family history that I just will never know as much as I want to know these answers. Um, and this is my way of kind of reconciling with that in a way. Yeah. And I, oddly enough, on a tangential subject, I, uh, having lost somebody recently that was close in our family, it's like the conversations that you sometimes have with people, you really don't know them. So, you know, mm-hmm. kind of knowing all about your family, your history, what your parents went through and, you know, what their parents went through, you know, all becomes kind of important. But especially, you know, in, in your case, you're trying to bring something to light that maybe people don't talk about or the education yeah. system doesn't really cover. So again, it becomes even more amped up and and important. So you're working at this museum. I mean, I'm assuming, again, you're kind of making work here and there, but how long did it take you to kind of go like, I got to move on from this? I worked there for eight months, so almost almost a year. I started in January and then I went to school in August, which my boss at the time at the Kimball, who I love Connie, I still talk to her all the time. But she, when I came in, like, I think I came in around like May or so and was like, hey, I got to thing to grad school she was like of course you did I knew you weren't going to be here long and I was like Connie I'm sorry <laughs> I mostly applied to grad school on a whim because I thought that was the next logical thing that I needed to do I was going back and forth between two different degrees either doing museum studies for grad school or I was going to do studio art and I just couldn't figure out which one I really wanted to do I really loved working in museums but I also knew I, I want to and I will continue having an artistic practice of some kind But I was going with, I needed to pick one or the other. I could not have both. I was very upset about it. And then finally, my mom was like, listen, for grad school, our family has one rule. You go where you get it paid for entirely. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's a good rule. (laughs) And she also was just like, you can just study whatever. You've already done it before integrating museum studies into your art. You can do it again in grad school. And you'll have more freedom to do that. So... I applied for studio art programs more than I did museum studies just to see what would happen. And then I interviewed with Michigan State and then I got in. Their art program is a fully paid three-year program. Usually it's two years, but I figured an extra year wouldn't hurt. And I was like, cool, we'll move to Michigan. We'll see what happens. Maybe I'll grow as an artist. Maybe I'll decide I like academia now Mm -hmm. and just went that route. And I moved that August of 2018 up to Michigan State. And so what were, again, those initial experiences like, you know, usually they kind of, I don't know, try to, try to, I don't want to say mess with you, but you know what I mean? It's almost like all the things that they liked about you, they don't like about you anymore. (laughs) Oh, no, that definitely happened in my initial thing. I remember our first day, um, they had all six of us grad students stand in front of all the faculty and staff and say, like, what do you want to explore while you're here you, these three years? And everyone gave really good answers. And then I was the only person who's from the South. And I both my parents are from the North. And so my answer was generally being here. I would like to explore how the North is just as racist, if not more so than the South, because people always give the South bad rep. I see it. But listen, the North has its own issues as well. Sure. And no one ever talks about them. 
And everyone was like, oh yeah, totally. We totally get that. That's so noble. And I was like, mm -hmm. we'll see what happens. And I had to do studio visits to figure out who I wanted on my committee. And I was showing some professors my work. And a lot of the critique that I got was don't use text. You use too much text in your work. And I'm like mildly or partially dyslexic. Like I, letters move, words don't make sense. I cannot spell to save my life. But I like to use text in my work because I think it's really fun to like figure out how to integrate that. And yeah, that was like a really big critique I got my first year of like, don't use text in your work. It's too wordy. There's too much information here, yada, yada, yada. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I will try that. So I tried it for a hot second. And then it was also that I was for the unless you counted our temporary teaching artists who only stayed for a year, I was the only black person full-time quote unquote on faculty and staff in my department. Mm -hmm. So I would have to like re-explain everything, which did happen at my undergrad, but I explained it once and then everyone knew and they didn't ask me multiple questions, but that's not necessarily always the case. It wasn't always the case at MSU, unfortunately. And so I, it was fun to get to teach everybody. And a lot of my professors did retain the information, but some of them didn't understand where I was coming from with certain things. I have a longstanding project I'm doing now um, called For Those Who Fought. And I just draw little soldier silhouettes, soldiers from World War One, because this sounds weird, but my favorite regiment of the army is the 369th Regiment from World War One, or the Harlem Hellfighters, which is a regiment of mostly Black and Puerto Rican men. Our government didn't bother to train them properly, so they all went to, and they were um, instead given to France, and they learned how to fight in France. And they all were given the Feu de Lume, I think it is. They were given like the highest medal of honor in France for their bravery, but then they came back here and they were treated like shit, as happens. And so I was making pieces about that. I didn't realize one of the professors was ex-military and he just didn't understand why I was making this commentary on the military of how for a lot of Black people, and especially the ones that I know, joining the military is a way to get social gains, but also a way to get out of just like bad situations or to try to make a better life for yourself. And he was very adamant. That's not how, what it was for me. And I was like, okay, it's not for you, but it's what it is for some people. I'm not saying it's what it is for me, but like for my family and for pe friends that I know, that is the reason why they joined. And it was just like a very a lot of cultural kind of differences that were happening. But then the pandemic happened, which really sucks. But I didn't have to have a constant barrage of people telling me how I needed to fix my art because mm -hmm. we were all on computers and I could simply shut the computer <laughs> if I wanted to which worked out, I guess it kind of helped. And I just went back to using more text and stuff in my work. Thing to grasp onto, because if that's what you're trying to do. So was that something then, you know, because this is during the pandemic, I'm assuming that you're kind of like then working on your own or did you have any access to facilities? Or No, I had absolutely no access to facilities. I remember the day the pandemic happened. I was, I was teaching, I was working part-time at the local art museum and I was doing a program that I unfortunately never ever got to do again. And it was in partnership with the local library. And it was with like the babies and they, we do story time and then we'd look at art and it was really cute. I really loved it. <laughs> and then I got an email that was like, go home. And I went, okay. And I was like, two weeks tops. Emailed my drawing class that I was teaching. I was like, we're going virtual. We were going to go to the library. I was getting my students into realizing that like they could do art research for their drawings and helping make those connections. It was really fun. And I love that class. That drawing class was one of my favorite classes I've ever taught. And then everything just 
didn't open back up. And I lived in a house with two other people at the time. I loved them dearly. It was very cramped. It was crowded. It was nobody knew about this random disease that was now rampant. It Everything was very scary. It was an old house, but I had my specific room and then my roommates had their room and then we had the living room. And I was kind of freaking out because I was like, what if I can never make it home? What if I can't see my family anymore? And I was being a bit overcautious, but still cautious nonetheless. But at the time, my roommates weren't taking it as seriously. So I was just holed up in a bedroom (laughs) for months on end. But I was having to do Zoom meetings. And then I was also told like, hey, you still have to do your second year exhibition. And I was like, I can't do oil painting in my bedroom. I will die. And so I had to relearn how to use acrylic paint. And I hadn't used that since high school. And I was not having fun with it. I had to buy a saw and stuff to like be able to build all my canvases because I really didn't like pre-made canvases and I wanted to stretch it into specific sizes and stuff. So I just kind of was doing it all in that space, but I was able to go back into just using, utilizing text in my work Mm because there wasn't anybody who could tell me no. But I will say one of the funny pieces that I worked on that I'm still kind of trying to fix now was a bottle piece that I have called Hanging Haints. And essentially I made stickers that are on bottles and the stickers are of racist imagery because haints are evil spirits from the South. Like it's a Southern thing. And one of the ways that you get rid of haints is you hang bottles from a tree and then they get trapped in the bottle because they're attracted to the shine in the moonlight. And when the sun rises, a haint is killed, but like their essence, I guess, kind of remains in the bottle. So I made like a bottle tree, like I bought a bunch of old wine and liquor bottles from a person. I put them in boiling water to get the labels off and all that stuff. So I'd have clean glass to work off of. But I was in a bedroom and I didn't have anywhere to store them. That was like not the floor where they could fall (laughs) over and break. So I put them all on my bed on like the um, on the dresser next to my bed. But the only place that was was like in line of my camera when I was doing zoom classes and it was before zoom had like put in the blur feature really so i would go on like staff meeting and i'd be like sitting there and there's just 100 bottles of alcohol (laughs) sitting behind me and at one point one of my professors two of my professors and like one of our admin people like called and texted me and like are you okay we saw a lot of liquor (laughs) bottles behind you i was like i didn't drink any of those i promise i'm fine and uh, made that project and it was very cathartic to like get to make it and that was my final project for that semester and stuff like that and then I had to start working on an entire exhibition that I had to do for my second year show which I didn't know what that was gonna be and I honestly do not like that show as much it's called reposting it's not my favorite one I've been debating about repainting or painting over some of the works in it because it's just it's all acrylic. It's not my favorite. I think I could have done better mm-hmm. if I wasn't in such a weird like COVID brain space. And that's one of the things I actually might like do this summer is repaint some of them and make them nicer. And I guess, you know, to think especially about the process a little bit, you know, and such a weird thing to be in a pandemic, losing your studio, having to reshift everything. Yeah. But in, in terms of like then, you know, how you work through pieces, I mean, are you really then kind of like, again, you kind of get some sort of inspiration, something that you want to talk about, you start researching it. Are you like taking notes? Are you like, you know, conceptualizing things in sketchbooks or is it something like by, by just doing it or, you know, I don't know, 
maybe talk to us a little bit about that process side of things. I don't, well, when I was first starting my stuff, my process used to be, I would write down something and then I do maybe like a really bad sketch and then I just paint it. Mm-hmm. And then Adam, my mentor, he didn't get mad, but he was like, you can't do this. And I went, watch me. And then he edited one of his lessons for us where I had to show him watercolor sketches and all this stuff. And I was like, how dare you make me do these things? And then I actually realized that help was helpful. So I guess he won that round. But then for grad school, I would keep a kind of like mini sketchbooks. I would write things down. Um, at one point, at that point, my phone had a stylus to it. So I'd mostly sketch things like on this with this uh, note app on my phone, just real fast to kind of get those things in there. But I would have multiple tabs and I still do it today open on my computer of like things that I was like, research this, but I just never closed the tab. So I was like, I'll come back to that later which my friends and family, whenever they look at my laptop or iPad, they're astonished by all the tabs open. I'm like, close nothing. It's it's all relevant. (laughs) So that's kind of like how I would keep track of those things. But I would start off with just, I'd hear about something. Hello, sorry, my cat is wanting attention. I'd hear about something and then I would go down a rabbit hole of trying to do more research and finding things, writing down notes. It was like me taking notes in school, just like trying to take those types of history notes. And then I would do some doodles and try to figure out, okay, well, this is what it could look like. I'd be doing a lot of like Google searching of what specific images for things. Um, The FBI agent in my computer and I have an agreement. I'm not terrible. I'm just looking up history. (laughs) So we'd like, I'd look into those things to try to find them. And after that, I would start to kind of piece it together and just do quick thumbnail sketches to be like, this should go here. We could use this color Um, or maybe do a watercolor sketch. And then I just go for it and build the canvas, build them whatever size I felt like having it be. I generally don't like to go paint on canvas that's larger than like 30 by 40 if I have to, but I really hate I don't like working on large pieces. It bugs me. Um, so I generally just build like a medium size or small canvas and then just go for it and see what happens and have all like the reference photos. I'd have a list of reference photos of this photo goes with this. Find I try to find historical or archival photos. For some things, it was a matter of me just actually going to the place. Some of my undergrad work and um, a little bit of the grad work I love to travel to places like historical places and I just take photos. I still look back at photos I took back when I was a sophomore for reference of things. And I would just travel to those places and take photos. I always, if I go on a trip of any sort, that's like a long trip. I got into the habit of I bring a a multimedia sketchbook and I have a travel watercolor case and some pens and a pencil thrown in. So I take those and draw those things as like references for whatever painting I needed to work on to transfer it to oil. That was the original process of how I would do things. It's changed now because of my thesis from grad school, because because of the pandemic, I couldn't go and travel to where I wanted to. And I realized that a lot of the places that said they were diverse and had like these diverse digital archives that can tell you all these things, that those archives sucked. They didn't have a lot of information And the tipping point was I was trying to look up the Freedom House from, I think it's Philly, which is the system that was used to make the ambulance service that we have today. 
So it was a bunch of black people who were deemed unemployable by the government. And this random guy at a university was like, I feel like they could have a job. And he was like, they're going to be an ambulance servant because before people would just put you in the back of a paddy wagon and then drop you off in front of the hospital or the police would. And then most people died from that. But this ambulance system actually tried to like maintain people and keep them alive long enough to get to the hospital. Mm-hmm. The system was working and it was only in black neighborhoods or poor neighborhoods and it was working as keeping more people alive and it was amazing. But then the rich white people got mad because they were like, oh, they're not keeping us alive. So the city terminated the free, free, free house project and instead instituted what we now have as the ambulance services. But I was trying to look up more information about it because I heard about it on a podcast. I found like one or two articles to read about it. And I was looking on like the National Archives and the U.S. Archives and I couldn't find anything. They didn't know what I was talking about. It was not a thing that has been recorded. And I didn't understand why I was like, this was literally a pinnacle to American history. I don't understand why this isn't in more places. And then I started just looking further back in Black history. And it's very obvious now but I, then I was realizing, oh, the further back I go in Black history, the more it becomes difficult for me to actually find us in a way that is humanizing and a way that is tangible for me to make anything. And then I came up with my thesis and it worked out well. Yeah. And of course, talk a bit about that, because obviously, you know, I have seen some of this work, I'm assuming, the ones that we were talking about earlier that mm-hmm. are kind of like traveling. Yeah. The runaways is what yeah, I call yeah. Well, and it's interesting, too, because it kind of goes back to the the text component, too, obviously, and, and that's something that's very integral to the whole experience of kind of working from that. But yeah, maybe maybe talk a little bit about that, just because I feel like you'll you'll do better than I will <laughs> explaining your own work, right? <laughs> so my thesis, I always say it's in two parts. It's two separate projects that work for the same timeline called The Problem with Archives, A Portrait is Worth Our Words. Very long title, but it works out. Um, And essentially, the problem with archives is talking about how archives and universities and institutions will say, oh, we're so diverse. We have this, this and this and yada, yada, yada. And we are looking at this history and we're bringing these things to light and blah, 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 blah. Cool. Great. But when you look further back into their own research practices, their own work practices, just things in general, it's not as diverse as they claim to be. And it's a very recent thing, um, especially with like the death of George Floyd. That's when a lot of people started being like, oh, diversity. I remember a lot of museums on Twitter were put like making statements of like, we stand with Black Lives Matter and da da da. But then the comment that a lot of people responded to with that, myself included, was show us a picture of your board. Because if your board is a majority white board, it's not that diverse. And you really don't necessarily stand because you don't have people from that community who are dealing with these problems on the daily. And a lot, no museums really responded to that, of course, but that kind of propelled my thesis of looking into this problem. And the first major project I did for it was called The Runaways, Wanted the Runaways. And essentially I found an archive called Freedom on the Move of over 30,000 runaway notices. And I decided in reading through them, I was realizing that The descriptions that were given were very generic. It could really go for any Black person unless they had a very specific facial feature. But also the like pricing and everything for these advertisements to this day still make no sense to me because there wasn't a system. It was some of them were just vindictive. And so in making this project, I decided I was going to create their portrait because in a way 
these advertisements are the last remaining portrait of these people. I don't know what happened to them beforehand and I don't know what happened to them afterwards. So I can only assume some made it, maybe some died, maybe some are recaptured, but I just don't know what happened to any of them, which is, that's its old nether like emotional issues I don't have the energy to deal with right now. But in going through all of those, I decided to use the words that were provided by the racist and biased enslavers to recreate a portrait of a person and to rehumanize them because these people were being talked about like objects in some of these advertisements and some points instead of using him or her they used it which is a lot and a lot of these descriptions I was like oh this could be my dad and I don't like that fact and so I started painting their portraits and I would sketch it out of based off of what the person had said and I had originally tested out of having it where the words just did the outline of the person because my art style is kind of cartoonish Um, but I realized that would be too subtle Mm -hmm. it wouldn't really show you what this was trying to do so I started messing around with what if the letters actually became the portrait like the full face and I made choices I was messing around with that and I made the decision that for all of the portraits the eyes were not going to be letters really maybe the pupils maybe the colors but otherwise, the eyes are very much, those are eyeballs, just because your eyes are your window to your soul. Like people's eyes are important. So I wanted to make sure that that was prominent to help recontextualize, humanize these people. But then at the same time, if there was a very specific physical feature about their facial structure that was mentioned, or like a scar, or their hair, or even a hat, that would be drawn to recontextualize all these people. And all of them are painted on linen, which is a lovely brown fabric. I love painting on linen. It's very expensive, but very worth it. A cheat sheet for painting brown skin because you already have that brown base. Some of the runaways are described as a Negro, which is not a color. So if they don't have some type of color description, like one person was described as a reddish Indian Negro, which I don't know what that is, but I gave them like a kind of red undertone. Or one person was described as a yellow Negro, which who's to say? Those were more I could play around with. I think this is the color that we're going for. But there are other people who were just described as a Negro, which doesn't tell me what at all their skin color could be. So I, I was able to just use the linen to be the remaining, to be like, to substitute that color. For those people in particular, their words are just black, black text. But then for others... I originally was doing everyone in black text and then I talked to one of my friends, Letitia, and she was like, why are you not using colored ink? And I was like, Letitia, this is why you're the better artist than me. So there's like a shift in the runaways (laughs) themselves. You can see where all of them are black ink and then all of a sudden it shifts to where some of them are black ink, some of them are red ink, some of them are brown, some of them are yellow. So like it changes. And I was really fun to do. Um, So there's the runaway portrait. When I presented it to my school and some of the professors were like, can you really do this? Should you be doing this? They should be more abstract. And I was like, I am going to do it and I'm going to make a lot of them. And they kept hounding me for a number. And I finally snapped and was like, I'm going to do 100. And they're like, that's a lot of paintings and you only have a year. And I went, watch me. So I did 100 uh, portraits of the runaways. Um, I don't know how I did it, but I know I got it done. <laughs> and then I did the other project from the Problem Archives is called the Black Elder Archives. And that is 10, in my style, hyper-realistic portraits 
of 10 black elders in my lifetime. And that includes my great aunt, um, my great uncle, my grandmother, friends of my family, grandparents of my friends. And um, also it includes Opal Lee, who is the grandmother of Juneteenth and is actually from my hometown. So I was able to get in contact with Miss Lee and was like, hey, do you want to be a part of my thesis? And she was like, of course. I was like, yay, I don't know you, let's go. And for each elder, I recorded me talking to them and I asked them all the same seven questions about essentially what it was like for them to grow up in in a segregated United States, either in Jim Crow or in de facto segregation. And the first question was, what is your earliest memory? And it was really fun because that kind of loosened them up. And they were like, oh, okay, well, my first memory was for my grandmother was learning how to wash dishes while listening to the radio and stuff like that. Then we started to get more in-depth questions of were you a part of the civil rights movement or was your family a part of it? Or did you not care? People had jobs. They couldn't just protest. They had to go make money. And then asking them, like, how did the death of Emmett Till affect your parenting style or affect just your life in general? And one of the elders said he just didn't go to the South anymore. He didn't need to go back and visit his family because he didn't want to die, which is heartbreaking. And so those portraits and those interviews are paired together. And I bought myself a sound dome, which was $2,000 and is still to date the most expensive thing I've bought for my artistic practice. And so when you stand under the dome, you can hear all of the elders talking to you about their stories and you can see their portraits while you're listening to it. But the further you step away or outside of the dome, the more muffled or hard to hear it becomes. And that is to give you like a visualization of with Black history, we have so many Black people who remember going through it. Ruby Bridges, like Black girl who integrated school, she's still alive. She's in her 50s. Like we have people who are still alive who dealt with this. They remember the civil rights movement, all these things, but we are not actually talking to them. And so I am showing you, this is what archives should be doing is finding these individuals, everyday individuals. I'm not like, not like big people, but just everyday people and asking them what it was like to build a more robust picture. And then if you are actively in that circle, you're hearing all these amazing stories. But if you're outside of it or further away, you only see a person and you don't hear the story. And so originally I wanted it to be like the archives were on one side of the room and the elders were on the other. And you got both of them and showing the connections of this is what archives are doing with the runaways. But this is what can do with the elders. And then that just didn't happen. But one day, potentially, we'll have like all 110 paintings or something in the same room. But for now, <laughs> it is what it is. Again, that aspect of just having those audio interviews, those discussions, I mean, I think, again, it yeah, brings another level to it. And that's something that, you know, just strikes me just thinking about all of your work is that, you know, you have all these different ways of kind of exploring your content and kind of making it available and kind of bringing it back up. And of course, you know, people can go check this out, not only the paintings, but then you can kind of hear these excerpts from all these people yeah. that you've interviewed. And, and that's again, really, really kind of cool because it again, puts it in a different perspective. And so it sounds like too, like, you know, we were alluding to this much earlier, but it sounds like you've just been kind of going, you know, and yeah. going after that. So this is, this has traveled to how many different places now, this, this exhibition? So it was first in Michigan. So it was first at Michigan State. Um, but we were put in a smaller gallery for our, our graduate show. So I had 100 paintings. And then they originally were like, oh, you can have 16. And I was like, nope. So <laughs> I was just very upset that day. 
I don't remember who I complained about it to, but one of my professors was like, what about if we have it displayed here as well? So then I just started going to different departments that I had worked with and it got displayed all over Michigan State campus. So it was at the library, it was at the African Studies Department, it was at ARCA, it was everywhere. And I was like, yes. So all 100 were on display in different places at one time with Michigan State. The elders went to Texas. They are in my parents' house because I don't have time and I have sound dome with me. But the <laughs> runaways, oh, they went to Texarkana first. I forgot. They went to a show in Texarkana for a hot second. And then I shipped 20 of them off to go on an adventure to South Africa. And I got to see them there last October. I got flown out by the oh, wow. school and stuff. So I got to go to South Africa for the first time. And it was really fun. Um, and there's actually another artist, Pearl if I'm saying your last name correctly, I'm pretty sure I am. But she did the exact same project as me with the Runaways. But Pearl is a PhD student in forensic arts. So she uses like AI and all this stuff to create hyper-realistic. Like they look like photos, but she did the Runaways from South Africa. And so our projects wow. are essentially the same. And Pearl and I are right now working on writing a proposal to send it to some galleries to get this show to travel. Pearl's great. Love her so much. <laughs> but they went to South Africa and then they just finished up last month in Minnesota. They're going to my hometown of Fort Worth this summer. And then they're going to go to Dallas after Fort Worth. And then some of them are going to DePaul University because I've been invited to speak there in October. They're maybe going to go back to Michigan State. And there's a gallery in Detroit that also would like to have them at some point as well. So they're just kind of like going everywhere. But at the same time, I'm still making more runaway portraits. Um, I'm going to start making more in the summer slash spring now that like we're no longer in winter in New York because I can go outside and use the woodshop. Because one of the things with the runaways that I haven't really told a lot of people, but I will tell them if they ask is they can be emancipated. I don't like to say you can buy one. So I just, mm -hmm. whatever the price was from the 1800s. I take what the inflation is of that for today. And that's how much that one particular painting is. Um, so people like sometimes people reach out and they're like, can I emancipate a person? I'm like, of course you can. Let's go. Which one? Who would you like to emancipate today? So I'm still making more so I can keep that number of having 100 or so with me at all times. Well, and obviously, too, you're in all sorts of different places and, and sharing this content. And of course, would encourage people to kind of reach out. So are you mostly on, in one social media platform or are you kind of everywhere? I'm kind of everywhere. I mean, I do. I have like if you search my name on Facebook, you'll find Lillian Young Art. So I have a Facebook that I sometimes use. I don't use it as much as like Instagram just because photos. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the stuff, or, well, not a lot, but I also do a lot of like, processing work and kind of explaining um, some art things to people on TikTok. When I started doing my graduate thesis, and it was like I, I last January, the very first day of January, I was not where I wanted to be. And I needed to hold myself accountable. And it sounds stupid, but I decided if I make a TikTok almost every day about my project and thesis, I would have more motivation to actually get something done because it would be more embarrassing to make this quote unquote video <laughs> series. And then people see that I'm not doing the work that I said mm -hmm. I needed to do. So I started to do those process videos of like, here's how I cut the lumber. Here's where I go to buy the lumber. Here's how I do the research for what I'm doing. The one video that blew up really big and actually got me connected with a lot of the friends I have now was I made a video of like, here's how I stretch canvas, specifically linen. And I was not expecting that to blow up like it did. And I was like, oh, 
okay, cool. I'll keep teaching you guys things. But I try to talk to talk on there about like, well, here's how I'm dealing with these things. And here's how I am going through these sections and stuff like that as an artist. And right now I was dealing with burnout this past couple months because I had my thesis of 110 paintings and then writing a like 50 page paper. So and starting a brand new job. So I haven't made as much as I want to, but I've just been going back into like research mode, which is fun. And I'm slowly documenting that with people and stuff like that, specifically on like TikTok and Instagram, but I usually share whatever I make on TikTok on Instagram. So people see it and stuff like that. But if people want to reach out, go for it. Yeah. And remind us the the Instagram handle real quick. Yes. It's from my high school days and I refuse (laughs) to change it because I don't feel like being creative anymore <laughs> it's lil life so it's l-i-l-l-i-f-e underscore and underscore art very much a high school instagram handle <laughs> but i really don't feel like changing it at this point i think it's kind of quirky so i'm just gonna keep it how it is but yeah i've been making things on there right now i'm doing more printmaking stuff just because i don't feel like doing oil painting since that literally took over my life for a couple of years mm-hmm. and i'm in the process right now of doing a research project with my friend natalie from the university of maryland she runs their print shop for her phd and so we are going to make books i've decided i want to learn how to do that so i've been going to like some book binding and bookmaking classes I'm learning how to make historical books, um, mostly like appendixes and indexes. Found my old high school textbook and I was just reading through it for the for kind of shits and giggles. And I realized, oh, there's like a lot of things missing from this book that was published in like 2003. So like, for instance, black people aren't really mentioned in the Revolutionary War, except for the first black man, first person to die in the Revolutionary War happened to be a black man. That's it. Black people didn't really fight in the Civil War. Who knew? Also, uh, the Great Reconstruction just didn't, isn't mentioned at all. So therefore it didn't happen. And so just kind of going through this, I'm like, this is missing a lot of, like a lot of important bits of American history. So Natalie has a printing press, a letter press specifically. I don't. So I'm just going to go to Maryland like this summer off and on. And we're going to make kind of like hardback books of just like the things that are missing from American history. It'll be really fun. I'm very excited to get to make this with a friend I've known since about high school. And she and her husband are very excited because they're going to use it for um, writing some papers and stuff like that. So, yay. Yeah, absolutely. And and obviously, again, you know, be sure to follow on Instagram. There's a, a link tree there. So I'm assuming, again, that's going to spiderweb oh, out yeah. into all the different things that are kind of going on. And I imagine you've, you're going to keep riding this wave forever. So yeah, I mean, I like doing museum work. I honestly get more out of being a museum educator than I sometimes do as an artist, just because I can see people's reaction. Um, even today, I get to, I got to give a tour to like 30 black children, and they were really engaged with the art. And they really liked doing it. And we were doing coloring in the galleries. Like, okay, you got like a minute left. And they were like, absolutely not. And I went, yes. <laughs> so they were really into it. But I like doing museum work a bit more practically because I have healthcare. Passionately, because it's just really fun for me to get to do that. And I get to see what other artists are doing and what others artists have done and see, figure out like, how can I incorporate this into my own work and things like that. But I'll always still be making artwork. I've, it's My job is a lot easier knowing how to make artwork and knowing how to do research and knowing how to talk to people 
as opposed to only knowing how to like talk to people but not knowing how to make artwork and things like that but I like doing both I like I said I want to continue to have an art practice I just have absolutely no aspirations to ever be a famous artist I feel like that's too much pressure <laughs> I don't want to be famous I'm very comfortable where I am right now of doing stuff in museums and then like doing art on the side for fun for myself and not having the pressure of like I have to have something for a Biennale or something like that. Well, again, it'll be exciting to see what you're up to on Instagram. And again, I hope people follow there and, and other places. But yeah, again, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been such a, a treat. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I hope people enjoy what they see and all that stuff. <laughs> Thanks so much to Lillian for joining me. Please go check out our website. That's littleartlife.org. And of course, be sure to follow on Instagram. That's at littlelife underscore and underscore art. There's a link tree there with all sorts of information. Of course, you can find all of this on Studio Break. So you can also go there and find hyperlinks for all of that. If you're in Dallas, Texas, be sure to check out her work in the group exhibition She, Her at Rotu Art Gallery that runs through April 29th. You can also check out her upcoming exhibition in Fort Worth, not super far away, in June. And again, be sure to give a follow so that that way you can always stay up to date with all the exhibitions that are coming up with Lily. Speaking of things coming up, our deadline for the 2023 Studio Break Student Competition is coming up. Again, that's April 30th. So if you want to be on the podcast and you are a undergraduate or graduate student visual artist, please get those applications in today. Once again, if you go to studiobreak.com, look under the competition page. It's really easy. You submit a small fee. You send an email with a portfolio slash Instagram handle and you are done. Our juror this year is Mia Reesberg. She'll be selecting five undergraduate and five graduate artists to appear in an upcoming episode of Studio Break. And two of those artists are going to be selected for a two-person show at Studio Break Gallery in West Chicago. Once again, if you want to share your work with the podcast, get it out there, please apply today. And of course, if you know any fellow artists or students that should apply, please help spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. Do want to make a quick note that if you follow on Instagram, you'll see we got a link tree with all sorts of pertinent links there, like our competition, like our recent exhibition with Lisa Bergankoy and Greg Edmondson subset that opened at Studio Break Gallery in West Chicago that runs through May 6th. So if you want to check it out, make an appointment, be in contact, send a DM. Or of course, if you're interested in any work, we got it all archived on studiobreak.com. So again, you can check that out under the gallery page. All of that is linked up under the link tree so check that out to find out more information of course if you want to follow studio break be sure to like our facebook page you can find us on twitter at studio break and of course on instagram you know where to go at studio underscore break be sure to subscribe on spotify apple wherever your podcast again that's all under the link tree music for today's episode is by golden shadow which features myself ben cohan and brett beery you can find a link to our ep that came out last year in that link tree you can find out more about ben and his paintings at m ben cohan studio on instagram and of course follow brett beery at brett beery on instagram and you can find all sorts of links there for and some of the albums that he's produced be sure to follow us at golden shadow band if you want to see some of my paintings it's just davidlinway.com you'll see it's all rolled into the same website be sure to subscribe to the newsletter while you're there we're going to be announcing opportunities and exhibitions and of course one of my paintings will be given away through that newsletter at the end of the year and of course i love hearing from listeners so if you want to say hello at david linaway pretty much everywhere on instagram is a great place so give a shout 
shout out, say hello, especially if you enjoyed today's episode and hearing more about Lillian's art. It's really fun to be able to bring you these conversations and let the artist tell you all about their work. So I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you real soon.